Hello, and welcome back to Barbarians at the Gate after our brief summer holiday. It's good to be back in the studio again, although in the immortal words of Eric Carmen, I am, in fact, all by myself because my co-host, David Moser, is no longer with me up here broadcasting high above the Dongcheng District in Beijing. He is calling in from... David, that's your cue. Oh, I see. Yes. Well, no man is an island, but I'm on an island, I guess. I'm calling in from Taiwan. No, not to your surprise. <laughs> Let me just say on behalf of the 25 million people of the city that you just left that we're really sorry for trying to blow all your shit up in the last couple of weeks. Uh, that's okay. As we'll talk about, uh, you know, it wasn't taken too hard here. I mean, people didn't think too much of it. People went around and went on their business. Uh, so I'm here in a what I would call a different instantiation of Chinese culture. And I came, uh, yes, I did come at an, a, a rather inauspicious moment, <laughs> just as, the, just as uh, Pelosi was making her visit here. So it was a, quite a nerve-wracking uh, entry. Just a few just quick uh, aspects of my coming in. Uh, this is, a, as I said, a different kind of uh, way of doing Chinese culture and also a different way of handling COVID. My first impression at the airport was in, in the Chinese context, COVID restrictions involve long lines that move very slowly and move through a, a certain bottleneck where someone's checking IDs or giving swabs or whatever, and they tend to, to be very orderly but very slow moving. When I got off the plane and went into the airport in Taipei, the first thing that I saw was just what seemed to be utter chaos. There were people running around. There were the there were the familiar dabai, the people in the hazmat suits, but but there were no obvious orderly lines. People just seemed to be milling around, and I said, "This this doesn't bode well." But I found out that that the way they did it, the way they handled this this sort of incoming chaos, was was to sort of uh, do it in a sort of bottom up rather than top down way. And by that I mean, as soon as I came in, the the dabai, you know, would notice me. If, if someone was standing there looking confused, they would they would proactively come over and ask you, uh, are you a Taiwan resident? What kind of uh, visa are you holding? Do you need to get your SIM card now? And they would ask me questions. Where are you in the process? And I would tell them. And then they would direct me over there. They would do it for me. They would say, have you installed the health code app? And I said, well, on this phone, but not on the other phone I have. Well, let me do that for you. And they would do it. And then they would say, all right, now go over there and do this other thing. And there would be maybe a small line. And it was almost like these white suits were like my, like the, the macrophages, you know, attacking a bacteria in the body. You know, there was like waves of white suited, PPE suited personnel there that were helping each individual at whatever stage they happened to be at because there were all kinds of people there. And... Amazingly, I was in there and out, out of there and in a taxi cab, I'd say, within 45 minutes, which was incredible for the, you know, the amount of chaos there. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing is, uh, as soon as I got here, I realized this is not the, uh, the WeChat world of everything you know, digitized on one single app. Uh, everything is, is pretty much, in fact, I was amazed I was paying cash for everything, uh, the taxis, the, the you know the restaurant food and and it's not the the meet the uh, digitally medi mediated world that Beijing and China is, 
And then, of course, the other thing that I was expecting, but still very interesting, was linguistically, um, I was suddenly struck by the fact that this is not Hua, this is Guoyu, <laughs> the Taiwan version of Mandarin. And the most obvious thing is when you when you say xie xie, thank you, when you say xie xie, they say bu hui, rather than bu kechi or nali, they, they say bu hui. So I had to quickly get used to xie xie, bu hui. And, and also other, you know, obviously funny things, they have a, a sort of a past tense using yo instead of, they just throw in a yo, like instead of saying ni kan guo nige dian ying ma, they'll say ni you kan guo jige dian ying ma. Other than the linguistically and administratively, uh, yes, I am in uh, another version of Chinese culture, and it's really quite nice. A couple of years ago, uh, I went to Taiwan to do some research for some articles, and it had actually been my first time going to Taiwan after many, many years in, in China. And I immediately felt like I was cheating on Beijing because I got to the, I, I, that similar experience, this is before COVID, of course, but flying into to Taipei, um, going up to the passport control thing. And, you know, they've got more or less like the same kind of uniforms on and everything looks a little bit similar to Beijing. And I give the fellow my passport. And instead of like, you know, 18 questions ending with, do you belong to an NGO? I got, I did, actually didn't quite understand him at first. But I realized after a moment he was asking about a particular Boston Red Sox player who was from Taiwan because he saw in my passport I was born in Massachusetts and was just curious my opinion about this utility infielder who happened to be from, from Taiwan. And I, I just was struck. I mean, this was the first of many moments in the relatively short time I was in Taiwan, that, in Taipei, that I was just struck by just how different the feel of the city was. And, you know, I mean, it's a cliche to keep calling Taiwan, you know, nice China. But it, it has that, you know, and, and I also, I wrote an article about this for, for one of the websites and I, I kind of said, you know, this is where I'm having my Tom Friedman moment where I drop into a city for one week and I just gush about it because it's so different from the place I just left. But I really got into the, the whole Taipei, Taiwan experience. And, you know, I, I can understand why a lot of the programs that, you know, you and I have worked for in the past have relocated or, or redirected some of their students, at least temporarily, um, to Taiwan while we await, you know, the bureaucratic, uh, you know, logjam untangling in the mainland. Speaking of Beijing, a city that you just left, and I'm sure you are, you know, all a flutter with wondering what is going on in, in our fair city since you departed. It also occurs to me that you landed roughly the same time as Pelosi, which makes me wonder if maybe the whole thing was just misdirection. You know, we actually don't care that much about Nancy, but that goddamn Moser's back again. And that's what's really. <laughs> I thought about that. Yeah, I thought about yeah. that. Thinks he does Xiang Shang and all that stuff. We'll show him. <laughs> Missile up your ass, son. Uh, <laughs> But the the it, since you've left, I mean, you, you kind of, I'm I'm really I'm really I really want to know your take on what's on the the how Taiwan or at least your small corner of Taipei kind of handled the last couple of weeks, because you know in Beijing I had a lot and having the usual conversations. Some are intentional, some are just kind of foisted on me in the elevator, and uh, you know there was a kind of I, I don't know if losing their shit is a technical term. 
So, you know, I've been talking to somebody who was like, yeah, you know, my grandmother was going to go to like, you know, the beach down in like Guangxi or Guangdong or Hainan or wherever the COVID isn't happening this week. And then immediately when Pelosi announced that she was going to visit Taiwan, like, well, let's hold the hold the line on the beach vacation in case the Americans invade. That's obviously a extreme interpretation of what occurred. But I think, you know, just the amount of bandwidth oxygen that the whole visit, you know, uh, sucked up in around Beijing and in the state media here since you've been gone was just incredible. I mean, it was it, it was impossible to get away from, especially when you compare it to the coverage in the U.S., which, you know, there were some stories, but it wasn't, I mean, it dominated here. Every, every single one of my official news WeChat accounts was for about a week was first Pelosi's coming, Pelosi shouldn't come, and then it was just missile, missile, bomb, missile, ship, missile, plane, ship, missile. I mean, somebody who does gender studies as an academic discipline would would probably have some interesting papers to write about the all-male leadership of the Communist Party responding to the actions of an Italian-American grandmother with phallic image after phallic image of military hardware. And I, I wonder what one would make of that particular response. That said, and I'll, I want your take on this too. It was a boneheaded decision for her to come here. I mean, it was, I'll tell you, I mean, from I'm not in the room, but for me, this was all about the Democrats being afraid they were going to be tagged as soft on China. And, you know, so Nancy decided to head to Taiwan and, if that was part of it or all of it, I know Nancy Pelosi has some connections with sort of a, you know, an interest in what's going on in China. But I, I, the timing of this with the midterms coming up was just, you know, it's too convenient. If that was her one of her rationales, if not her primary rationale, the flip side of that stupid decision was that, damn, Beijing couldn't have played into her hands any better if she had scripted it with a Hollywood writer. Because the way the way they completely flipped out, you know, made Nancy look like, you know, some kind of like San Francisco society, Joan of Arc, white savior marching into Taipei and, and you know, talking about liberty. And, you know, the, the optics on both sides, man, the optics on both sides just sucked. You know, I mean, no, no one came out of it. I mean, China, neither China nor the U.S. came out of this looking, looking good. And, and I, you know, I, it was a, you know, particularly depressing three weeks of just watching an already tenuous relationship get shredded. It's like two people who are been arguing. It's like a couple who's been arguing with each other for like three weeks. They finally settle down to dinner and then they look across the table. And it's like, how's your steak? It's good. I'm fucking the gardener. And like it all blows up again, you know, and it's just like, has it been like a great month? I'm, I want to know how I know. What it, I want to know what the Taipei take is, though. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I certainly agree with you that 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 this was a, a kind of a reckless and I don't a sort of counterproductive decision by Pelosi. And I didn't quite see what the point of it was. I don't see what it accomplished. It seemed sort of gratuitous. Uh, you know, I know it was a promised event, but uh, it still seemed like the wrong time. Didn't really add anything or, or even detract anything, really. It, it just all it did was serve to do, as you say, sort of uh, rile up the bad feelings between two spouses who have decided on a new normal. Sort of, we won't talk about that thing, but then we do talk about it, and then the fighting ensues. But you might, our audience might be a little bit surprised to find out that. In Taiwan, this whole thing was received with a lot more equanimity and tranquility. Uh, 
most of the people polled, and I watched the polls carefully here, you know, 70, 78% of people uh, were, were not upset with it. They, they, didn't, they said they had no fear of, that anything was going to escalate. Uh, they, there wasn't any uh, media blitz about taking precautions. Uh, there has been a little bit of renewed interest in bomb shelters here. But um, other than that, people went about their business. And in fact, amazingly, there were some articles about this, but I also heard about it from some friends that uh, during the, 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 uh, the second and third of, of the month, you even had tourists going out uh, to the shores uh, to, to go snorkeling or go out on, going out on their yachts to get a closer look at the PLA military drills uh, or the exercises that they were doing. Um, and in fact, uh, on one of the islands, Liuqiu Island, I guess, they, they actually had some sort of celebrations where they had sort of a outdoor bubble bath and, and people dressing up and squirting water guns and, and taking photos of, you know, the... Uh, the ships out there, which which were somewhat visible from the shore, they were only about ten miles out in some cases, and the people that I talked to, in fact, in Taipei, it wasn't a topic of conversation. They weren't particularly concerned about it. Uh, I first came to Taiwan in 1985 when it was still under martial law, and uh, you know there were there were uh, you know bomb shelter drills every day. I mean there was a sirens going off, and you know there was an imminent attack coming any day. This is basically what most Taiwanese grew up in, was that, you know, the PLA was coming, there were ships or, or planes flying over, and, you know, every day or every week there were practice drills and things. And people have literally grown up with this. And so it's a specter that's been over their head, but it's, it literally does not affect their daily lives. They go about, you know, eating, going out, doing their daily activities. One of my friends, uh, who's a jazz musician actually here, that, that had lived in Beijing, said, and I don't want to make too much of this, but he said, uh, you know, it's a little bit like a death that, you know, someday you're going to get sick. Someday you're probably going to die. You don't know when, you don't know how soon it will be, when it will be. But you don't go around worrying about it every day. You, you live your life. And if, if it happens, when it happens, it, start, it happens. And, and that's kind of the, the attitude here. Uh, I mean, these people have grown up and lived with this for, for, for decades, for their entire lives. Most people here, I would say, are rather happy with the sort of ambiguous status quo that had been the, the, the fact of life for, for most of their lives, which is that there was always this tension there. It was never resolved. The, this, the extent of U.S. involvement was never made clear. But this seemed to work very well for them. At this point, the, the, the desire for reunification is uh, gone away completely. So people are people are a, a sort of have no desire or motivation to, to pursue any kind of reunification. Unlike the '80s when I was first came here, when a lot of people did have a very strong emotional attachment to the mainland and wanted some kind of an eventual reunification. Nowadays, there's no taste for reunification, but there's also uh, no taste for independence either. The, the idea is the status quo seems to work pretty well for us. Going either direction is going to is going to cause a, a state change, which might be disastrous. People were willing to live under that uncertainty rather than the certainty of conflict. And it seems like the opinion polls that have been done in Taiwan over the last few years tend to bear that out, right? Like, if you ask people, you know, do you want independence? 
few people say yes. Do you want reunification? Very few people, you know, say yes. If you want to maintain this, maintain the status quo seems to be the the right. you know usual default. choice default, right? Yeah. And you know, I I think one of the challenges uh, in this issue, and this is this is a challenge in many issues actually, is that there is of course you know one of our favorite topics, information asymmetry. I don't know about your experience, but in my experience, very few people I've met in China, there are some, but very few people in China have traveled a lot to Taiwan or really have any connection to the island in terms of reading the media or friends there. And as a result, you know, I think when I talk to people here and I express, you know, the reality that, you know, on Taiwan, not that no, not that many people want independence, which of course, you know, in the state media here, they try to, they, you know, they they have this kind of conspiracy theory that you know the entire, at least the DPP is, you know, secretly every day plotting to declare independence, or that people on the in Taiwan want reunification because a shocking number of people I talk to on the in in China are like. What do you mean they don't want to be part of? Because all they hear is how the Taiwanese people, like the Chinese people, yearn for reunification. They're like lost brothers and sisters. One of the things about this sort of lack of Taiwanese voices, it's not just a problem in the Chinese media. Frankly, I wasn't hearing a whole lot of Taiwanese voices in the coverage on in the Western media. I was hearing more of them for sure. But but still, you know, I, I it's hard for me, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying about Pelosi. It's hard for me to, to to envision this as anything other than posturing, sort of for the other side, but actually posturing more internally, like the the way this was packaged and presented to the Chinese. It was it was all done for a domestic audience. You know, I, yes, there was a certain amount of like you know, demonstrating to the United States that we're serious about this. But I don't think that's what all of the, frankly, overreaction was about. It was about signaling to people in China that we're taking this seriously. And the way it was portrayed, the way it was packaged in the media here, it made it seem like a much bigger and more robust response than it, than it ended up being. Don't get me wrong. It was more robust than any that than has been previously the case. But you know, I think there was a need to respond to a segment of the online population in China, reflecting, I'm sure, some offline conversations as well, that when Pelosi landed, her plane wasn't blown out of the sky immediately by the Chinese Air Force. And that was disappointing to a lot of people here. The thing about these, going back to this, is that China's, the Chinese side is talking to Chinese audience. The American side or the West is talking to a Western audience. And that's why I think it's great that you're in Taiwan and, you know, talking to people, because I, I just feel like once again, you know, the voices of Taiwan are, are not getting shared. And the fact that people in Taiwan are making a joke about it, some people in Taiwan are taking some fun, having some fun with this, let's say. Uh, I have to say of all the responses that, that, that could be, that would piss Beijing off the most, having people turn it into a picnic would be right there at the top of the list. Yeah, well, of course, it's all hyperbole. We're not saying it's one or the other. People are very realistic about it. In terms of, of what the, the Taiwanese are thinking, you're right. Very few, very few uh, in the, very little in the foreign media represents the Taiwan experience. There, there's very, very few reporters here interviewing them, putting them on the air. There's a lot of politicians that are venting, but the, but there's not much you know a voice in, uh, from the Taiwan Taiwanese people, and uh, they're very aware of that. Of course, when Pelosi landed, there were 
sort of two groups of protesters there. One that were welcoming her and then another group that was saying, you know, why are you doing this? Go home. And I think, uh, you know, there is, if there is a, a unanimity of feeling in Taiwan, it's that they're kind of being used by both sides. They, 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 they all feel like pieces in a chessboard. That, that is distressing to them. It's insulting to them. They wish that they had more, but they're also very realistic. The thing is, the thing that's interesting here is that they're, they're sort of, they've evolved from a, you know, being called a renegade province, a sort of uh, a, a sort of area that's a sort of a question mark geopolitically that's never been re resolved. Most Chinese, most Taiwanese are pretty used to the situation and are fairly happy with their identities. You know that when I came here, most there were many many people who, if you asked them, are you Chinese or are you Taiwanese or both, they would say both. They would say, I'm, I'm yes, I'm Chinese. They had some of them still had had come directly from the mainland or still had strong ties to the mainland. <clears throat> but they would usually say, yes, you know, I have a, a, a Chinese, I'm still Chinese, but I have a Taiwanese identity. And if you look at opinion polls that has shifted over the last 20, 30 years, and now most Taiwanese will just say, identify as I'm Taiwanese. And they, they understand historical facts, but they don't see themselves with a, with a mainland Chinese identity. So, so that's one thing. Uh, and the other thing is, uh, it's a very porous information environment here. So they, they hear both sides, including, you know, they, hear, they certainly hear the mainland voice, they certainly hear the Western media in the U.S., and they're very, they're very aware of that. Uh, since being here, I've watched several documentaries on, on Taiwanese TV. They, 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 they seem to have, this is the market for all the, the BBC and American documentaries on Chinese history that you see on the, on the Learning Channel or PBS or whatever, you know, that has the history of World War II and, you know, and they show them here. So, so they're getting a historical view that's uh, very much, you know, in tune, in tune with the West. But I wanted to, to highlight something, though, though, that there is still a lot of resonance with Taiwanese culture and mainland culture, which surprised me a little bit. When I, when I first came here, um, I found out that... Uh, the Chinese rock star Cui Jian had had been to Taiwan just recently. I think just a month before I came, and he won uh, an award at something called the Golden Melody Awards in Taiwan. His his group played, and he played uh, a, a concert there, and won an award as best male singer in that contest. So this is a mainland Chinese rock star, although perhaps a little passe in the mainland, but he's still remembered here. And I talked to, my wife is here as well, and we'd, I talked to some of her friends uh, over dinner, and they about, I asked about Sui Jian, and uh, one of her friends said, oh yeah, uh, I grew up in Taiwan listening to Sui Jian, and I worshipped him. And also, also uh, Hei Bao and uh, Tang Dynasty, the, 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 you know, the Chinese um, heavy metal groups. In fact, there might be a Kaiser Guo fan here, for all I know. <laughs> you know, so they grew up listening to these uh, to this music, and they still uh, consume a, a, a fair amount of mainland Chinese media. Uh, you know, things like TV series and, and entertainment. So they're very cosmopolitan. They're very open. They understand everything, and they, I, th I think, they're very, very clear about their their role in all of this and what their plight is and they're so much they're so much they're very realistic about it and consigned to it but they're also very relaxed and sane we, you ask people here you know if if china should attack you know what would taiwan do and, and they and most people say 
we don't think fighting is worth it. I mean, if it comes to that, we'll basically just just give in to our fate because there isn't really much we can do. I, I wouldn't join the army and fight in that situation. I think that we just say we just accept the new normal. Philosophically, they, I think uh, they, they've sort of found a, I don't know whether it's a Buddhist influence or a Taoist influence or just a practical you know, matter of what you've grown up with, but they have a very realistic and sane attitude and, re, and awareness of, of their problem. And they, are, they have had a long time to think about it and think about what they might do if in the eventuality that something would occur. And I think they've all come to a consensus that que sera, sera. <laughs> whatever will be, will be. We will see what happens. And when that happens, we'll, we'll figure out what to do with it. I would also say, though, that, um, you know, that this notion of, you know, what would the people who, who talk about reunification, and we're talking about the, uh, the KMT, for example, Really, what most people are talking about now is not really reunification, but but more like a, a coalition government, two different governments ruling, you know, both part of China but ruled by two different. So, in other words, one one country, two systems, right? But uh, Tsai Ing-wen will say, you know, that you know we already have one country, two systems, and it's working quite quite well. You know, if, if you could just reconceptualize it in that way, there would be no problem. And they would say, sure, we're a part of China, we'll, we'll deal with that. Uh, but the problem is that that's not where the, the way the mainland conceptualizes it. So, so anyway, anyway, but being here, uh, I've been impressed by the Taiwanese people living under these conditions. And uh, I would say most people live pretty happy and uh, contented, I would even say, uh, with their life here despite all the political intrigue. Yeah, that's a really interesting take on one country, two systems, because it, it, it's completely right. If you were to argue that Taiwan is part of China, and a lot of people do, there are two systems within this greater China uh, that seem to function reasonably well for the people under those systems. What What's the need to change that status quo? Of course, the kicker for that is, of course, that the, the, the Chinese government and the Communist Party they don't understand. They don't have a, as you said, a conceptualization of one country, two systems, in which they don't have control over both systems. So, I mean, that's. I think that's why it's such a a great way to kind of tweak uh, some of the rhetorical sleight of hand coming out of Beijing. But I, I want to ask you a question, kind of a linguistics question, and it's it's tangentially related to Taiwan, but it's something I've always been curious about. When we talk about the, we use the term Chinese as, a, as an adjective, you know, we can be talking about Chinese food, Chinese, a Chinese citizen, somebody who is Han Chinese. And one of the, one of the things I think about sometimes is, okay, I'm using an English word that we use to cover an awful lot of territory linguistically that in Chinese uh, is occupied by many different terms. And I was wondering if, you know, when we say like someone who's from on Taiwan says, I'm Chinese in English, that can actually mean a lot of different things depending upon what that person is thinking in their head in, in Mandarin, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, we're talking, if you want to ask that question, you're talking about something that applies to Taiwan. It also supplies, applies to Malaysia, to Singapore, Hong Kong, and so on. Uh, 
you know, in in Singapore, for example, you know, they they call the the, the form of Mandarin that they use there as hua is huayu. So hua is a, and the Taiwanese Taiwanese airlines here is hua is China Airlines, but they use use the words use the word hua as as this a broader notion of you know hua qiao, for example. We use that in that's heard frequently in Beijing. Why do they say hua qiao? Because it's it's a it's a very good term that sort of focuses on historical and uh, you know maybe racial ethnic historical origins and and connections based upon those aspects rather than state aspects. You know, and those are those are notions that have been blurred or that. Well, they've certainly been blurred by the diaspora, obviously, but then they were they were intrinsically never that clear, <laughs> is the point. So I think that the you know the 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 Taiwanese, when referring to themselves, will talk about Taiwan. They might recognize that they are part of the Han. They might be Han, or they might be something else. There's a there's a mixture here, just like there is in China, right, in terms of that identity. But I'd say mostly they're. Their political, their political identity and their national identity is, is right now for most of them is Taiwan. We're Taiwan Taiwanese, right? Now, deep, if you go a little bit deeper than that, they will certainly uh, say, "Yes, I'm part of this culture, obviously, the language, the religions, uh, and so forth." But you will find this 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 character Hua, if if not explicitly, then impl- implicitly brought in as what that relationship bears to them directly in terms of their own identity. So you're talking about an identity relationship here. And they they would, and I'm not sure that if you ask this question to them, they could even give you a coherent answer. But my feeling is that that's, that's the, their own self-image is based somewhat more on that broader category. And that's how they handle it. I would also say just by the way that, you know, I say, you know, a different instantiation of Chinese culture. It's true, but I mean, here, for example, uh, the, the 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 deeper sort of some of the uh, sociological aspects of, of China that have been uh, uh, muted or managed in the mainland here have here have just uh, freely developed uh, along their own lines such as Buddhism Taoism the religious aspects there's the religious religiosity is much more in evidence here it's much more freely practiced it's also much more commercialized and trivialized for that reason <laughs> you know it's not left to be it's left to be you know subject to market forces in a certain way in the way it's not in the mainland right for for, for better or worse and then of course you have all the other things that they still uh you know confucius is still a big center of the their attention when we talk about it education and values and so forth so i mean it's it is definitely a very chinese culture and some people will say they've actually retained some of the Chineseness that has been lost in the mainland, but I would I would say they're very much aware of that aspect, and they're very aware aware that these aspects that they participate in, that the center of gravity and the origin of all that stuff rests in that other China that they don't have access to. And back when I came in the, in the 1980s, I think that was a painful realization for many of them. Who, but I think for now the pain is it's not it's no longer there. It's not a painful realization. It's just. It's just sort of like me realizing that I have uh, that I have Germanic background. That doesn't bother me. It doesn't. I don't feel proud about it. It's just a fact. My ancestors came from Germany, so I'm a, I'm in another state of mind right now. So I think 
if you try to understand what it feels like to be Taiwanese here, I think that's probably a, a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I could understand that. I mean, thinking about just the change of generations, you know, in the 1980s, right. you still had a large number of people who were born in or on the mainland who had been right. part of this exodus. And, you know, when you leave your home, you know, as both of us know, living over living abroad, you still have that connection to where you were born, even if you're not necessarily rushing to go back there. And this is true. We see this with first generation, second generation, third generation um, U.S. citizens in, in America, you know, the first generation still will often maintain very strong connections to the home culture, but their kids and their kids' kids, you know, as you said, eventually it's just like, yeah, well, my ancestors are from such and such a place, but I don't necessarily have the same, you know, connection that my grandparent, my parent, grandparent did. Yeah, that's that's right, Jeremiah. It reminds me of a conversation I just had the other night where some people were sort of reminiscing or talking about, you know, where they came from or where their ancestors came from. And they were mentioning the fact that when, uh, you know, the first wave fled to the to Taiwan from the mainland, that 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 uh, Chiang Kai-shek here on the island and, and then, you know, other sort of uh, administrative tasks that had to be carried out with all of these refugees, right, was that they had to sort of divide them into separate camps because there were people who from from the, from the south, from the north, from different, you know, provinces, and they all ate different foods and they all spoke different languages. And so putting them all together in one mass just wouldn't work because they wouldn't be able to, to coexist very easily. So, you know, Chiang Kai-shek actually had these different, I don't forget what they called them, but like barracks where the parents and the kids would live. And there they would speak, you know, Minnanhua, or they, you know, then another place they would speak Shandonghua, and they would eat Shandong food, and they had to have cooks who could cook that food, right? So there definitely was, a, in, when they, the first wave, there was a definite feeling of mainland identity that I'm from Shandong, or I'm from this other province. Nowadays, as you're, you're so right, as the generations pass, it becomes just a dim memory that your grand, great-grandparents, your grandparents told you about. But that fact that you came, that your parents came from a certain province in China, takes on less and less meaning as years go by. And of course, things like the the language and the cuisines have been absorbed here in this culture and are part of the the living culture. But they're not segregated, much in the same way that that all all kinds of immigrant aspects in the United States blended for a time. You know, there was separate uh, ethnic conclaves, you know, enclaves at different places. But now those, all those different influences and, and uh, linguistic, culinary, you know, aspects are blended into American culture. That's the situation we have now in Taiwan. They're all there, but it's no longer part of your identity that I'm a Shandong Ren. One of the dumbest online memes in, in the mainland in the past month, and that's saying something, uh, was this uh, moment where people were taking Baidu maps and looking at maps of Taipei and pointing out all the restaurants and streets that had names that referenced provinces back on the mainland, which caused uh, one, one person I follow on Twitter to say, if we're using that as our standard, then almost every city in China belongs to Kentucky. Because... <laughs> You know, it's, right. it's it's like it's like the British government saying, well, you know, United States, you've got that New York and the New England and Portsmouth. So I'm thinking that we no longer renounce the use of force to resettle the American Revolution. I mean, it, and it, it speaks to what you're saying, which is, 
you know, the ties that we have with our native places can be very strong. They weaken over time and they don't always quite mean that the in the new form that they take, that that implies a, a yearning to return, if you know what I mean. And so, and so I think that this meme that went around and the inevitable backlash, even I should point out to be fair, even on Chinese social media, there are people like, yeah, I, I, I don't think you think you're, you're not making the argument you think you're making. Here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, it speaks to what you are saying. Well, David, you know, I think there are, there are, I can't wait to hear more about your adventures in Taiwan. You know, one of the things I, I want to talk about um, coming up soon, once school is back in session is, of course, you know, one of our favorite topics, which is, uh, you know, what's the future of uh, international education? There's been some movement uh, yes, in China right. in yep, terms I've of student that. visas. Uh, we're not totally sure at this moment. I mean, we're, we're taping this at the end of August, not totally sure at this moment exactly how that's going to play out, what that means for which programs. But I'm hoping that in a couple of weeks when you and I reconvene, uh, perhaps we can we can talk about that and, and, and give a kind of state, at least a, a current state of affairs between Taiwan, China and, uh, you know, the field of education. You're right. I, I have seen the, the news about that and there is some movement. So, yeah, by the time I get back, there ought to be something to talk about. And I hope it's uh a little more optimistic than than what the news we've had in the last two or three years. Indeed, indeed. Well, stay safe in uh, in Taiwan. You know, good good luck practicing your duck and cover drills if you really <laughs> still do that. Maybe my my P, uh, Peking duck and and cover drills. As long as there's food in the bomb shelter, I'm okay. I'm I'm okay. And the food, by the way, here is pretty damn good. Pretty damn good. I I really miss the the uh, the Sichuan cuisine that we get in Beijing because uh, they just don't have that here. They're, really? They're not really that many. Yeah. They're not that much into spicy food, but they, but everything else they've got in, in, in abundance, but just those, those absolutely torturously hot, uh, you know, Sichuan spicy dishes. They don't have them here or very yeah, like, rarely anyway. Or like, you know, a, a Chongqing hot pot, which is a basically like heating up a, Oh yeah. An iron chain. And this wrap, wrap like yeah. you take it, you eat it. And then basically you pull it through your colon. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I can see why uh, you missed that. <laughs> okay. Thank you for that image, Jeremiah. It's going to stick with me for a while. Just like Chongqing Hot Pot. <laughs> uh, just like Chongqing Hot Pot. All right. Well, thank you, David. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Barbarians at the Gate. We'll be back at you from Beijing and from Taipei uh, in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Cue the drums. Cue the drums.